This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Well, good day, friends. We're uh, starting our year again after a summer break. And Professor Michael Baker, who's an expert on pandemics and immunology. I'm probably, am I mispronouncing your specialty? In epidemiology? Epidemiology, yep. Yeah. yeah. It's and not, basically, it, public health medicine is the broader area. Okay. Well, first of all, you can podcast this later on by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcasting going to community or chaos. Well, Michael, what's happening with COVID right now? We had a bit of a pop about a a month ago. There's a a lot of things happening with COVID. I mean, one of the things in the wider context is we're coming up to our fourth uh, anniversary of this virus circulating in New Zealand, which arrived in the 28th of February uh, 2020. Uh, so it's remarkable that it is still causing uh, such high levels of infection and illness. And the other factor that's happened is that we're really coming out of our fifth wave of infection. And because New Zealand had an elimination strategy, of course, we didn't have widespread circulation uh, for the first two years. So really in February 2022, we started to get the virus circulating widely for the first time. Um, And then we had last year and now this year. And so over that time, we had five waves of Omicron infection. But one of the big surprises was this fifth wave was much larger than the fourth. And so that's really telling us that this virus is not going away. And the, the main reason for that is it's continuing to evolve very rapidly and that these new subvariants are succeeding because they're good at getting past our existing immunity. So that means this virus is still capable of surprising us. It's behaving very differently from, say, an influenza pandemic, which in a sense is how we always think about pandemics, often going back to the 1918 flu pandemic. So we have to adjust our expectations for this virus and, and, and how it's going to behave in the future. The difference between 1918 is a lot more people died, and not necessarily got it, but a lot of people, a huge number of people. I understand more people died of that uh, Spanish, so-called Spanish flu than died in World War One. Yes, it did. Yes, yes, it didn't come back after a while, and this will come back. You think? Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. The the 1918 flu pandemic was was devastating. It came just after the First World War, the tail end of that. For New Zealand, we had 9,000 people died from that first wave of flu in November 1918. And that was half as many as were killed in the entire four years that we were participating in the First World War. So that was a real shock. And the other thing that was very distinctive was this high mortality in young adults that's still not fully understood because 
the flu normally mainly affects children with high rates of infection and the elderly with high rates of mortality. So this was quite different in how it behaved. But the other huge difference uh, with COVID is that uh, uh, with flu, it swept through New Zealand and in six weeks it was gone. It did come back as part of our regular seasonal flu after that, but didn't have the same mortality. Whereas with COVID-19, it just doesn't go away. It's here the whole time. And that means that over um, a period, maybe it's going to be for several years, it is causing high mortality, but it's in the elderly. But the other big consequence that is different with COVID-19 is it does cause long COVID. I mean, there is a long influenza. Uh, in fact, almost all infections appear to create a sequelae of chronic illness. But this seems to be much more a feature of COVID-19 than what we're used to. So that's this other big impact. Okay, what should the institutions be doing first? With this well, I think uh, the, the point we've made um, now repeatedly is that we need an integrated respiratory infection disease strategy. So one of the benefits of taking a broad approach is you're not just having to deal with COVID-19, you've also got influenza, RSV, and these other respiratory infections. Now, they all come in a, uh, a winter wave every year. We see a, a, almost a global epidemic of these infections sweeping around the world. And because they've been in circulation for a long time, they need um, the boost that you get from winter to help them spread. And so uh, prior to COVID-19, influenza was our biggest infectious disease killer, uh, probably killing around uh, 500 people every uh, winter. And again, mainly in older age groups and people with underlying illness. Now at the moment, COVID-19 is um, killing a lot more people. Uh, last year, it resulted in at least a thousand deaths in New Zealand, so twice as many as flu. Obviously, we're hoping that the numbers will decrease, and there's a whole lot of reasons why that will probably happen. But we've essentially added another um, grim uh, killer to our list of diseases that will basically sweep through the population every year and shorten the lifespans of our um, older generation. And we'd obviously like those people to be around longer. Some of us are already heading <laughs> into that older age group ourselves. So it would be great if we could have um, an, a, a longer um, uh, old age without having influenza and COVID-19 shortening our lives. But the other big worry with COVID-19, as I was saying, is that people of any age are getting long COVID, which is really debilitating. Uh, that's a question I'd like to ask you. Um, I, I've had COVID twice. I don't think I've had long COVID. In fact, and both times, not seriously, but I, I took it seriously, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. I got, you know, the virus shots and uh, took it easy. But what can one do to try to prevent long COVID? Uh, the number one measure for an individual apart from not getting infected, which is difficult to avoid entirely, is to be vaccinated. And all of the evidence is really showing that vaccination is very protective. It doesn't eliminate the risk of long COVID, but it's the best single thing you can do. Um, after that, um, uh, there are demographic things you can't change because long COVID is more common in uh, women who are infected. Uh, and the other thing would be having a healthy weight and um, it, it also seems to be um, probably somewhat protective and um, managing long-term health conditions like diabetes probably helps. What about um, rest? But, um, yeah, uh, the suggestion is that, that um, not getting, not forcing yourself back into vigorous exercise during that recovery period is probably a good idea, but I'm not sure how strong the evidence is for that. How long is the recovery period generally? Well, um, it's until you feel better and you, you gently get back into your normal activities. Because some people barely notice the infection, others are absolutely wiped out by it. And unfortunately, um, 
remain in that state for um, we don't know how long. I mean, the virus has only been with us, with the world for four years. So it's early days, but it looks like some people go down the, the path of um, a chronic um, infection and um, uh, the EME kind of um, pathway, um, chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, we don't know, again, we haven't known up till now what causes that. But one of the benefits, I think, from COVID-19 has been this huge focus on the immune response to infection and why for some people uh, they have persisting symptoms. And there are probably tens of thousands of New Zealanders living with chronic fatigue, uh, these post-viral syndromes that have had very little help, I think, from the health system. At the moment, we have a lot of people with long COVID who, again, are getting very little help from the health system. But there is a huge global research effort underway to understand the drivers of the syndrome. And they are getting some big breakthroughs at the moment. Recently, uh, there have been a demonstration of very clear biomarkers that are different in people with long COVID compared with controls. So that's going to be the beginning or the pathway towards finding a test which can identify or confirm that you have this syndrome. And then it'll be a few steps beyond that to, to, to start to, to identify therapeutic drugs and interventions that will make a difference. Should we still make an effort to... Oh, first I want to ask you about vaccination. There isn't any, there's very little evidence of vaccination doing harm. I mean, we've been getting vaccinations. We started out with smallpox over 200 years ago. Could you talk about vaccination a bit? Because it seems to be a, a question that matters. Yeah, well, there's no question that uh, vaccination for COVID-19 reduces your risk of serious illness and death. Uh, so it provides a personal benefit. Uh, at the moment, the vaccine has three major shortcomings. Um, one is that it doesn't stop onward transmission. It probably reduces it somewhat. Um, so um, it's not a sterilizing vaccine. That's the, the vaccine you really want. Like measles vaccine stops you transmitting the virus. The second thing is it doesn't give you long-term protection. You need to get boosters. Uh, it looks like some components of your immune system, like T cells, do remember the vaccine longer than your cells that produce antibodies. Um, so the antibodies fall quite rapidly. So uh, that's a feature of um, this particular virus. And the third problem is uh, it doesn't protect you from all variants of the, of the virus. So um, the virus keeps evolving and it gets better at evading your immunity. And this is natural selection. So the dream vaccine would be much more like measles vaccine, which gives you lifelong protection after two doses of a vaccine that covers you for all varieties of measles virus and also stops you transmitting it. And that's why measles, is, which is even more infectious than COVID-19, can be fully eliminated with a vaccination program, which most of the world has succeeded in eliminating measles as a result. But we, we, we can't do that with COVID-19. Whereas if we had the dream vaccine, we could. Elimination at a global level would start to become possible. So that's the vaccine for, for COVID. Um, obviously, for all infectious diseases, it's got the same. They're all on the spectrum from the, the dream vaccine to an average vaccine. And that's um, just the nature of how these infections behave and how our immune system deals with them. With measles, you had 300 years to work on vac vaccine. How long did it take to get the dream vaccine? Yes, that's a very good question. Well, I think the, the vaccine became available, uh, I think, in the 50s. So um, it was uh, uh, not the earliest vaccine. Um, so we've had rabies and smallpox vaccines for a long time. Uh, well, I remember reading about people getting some primitive vaccine against measles uh, in the late 18th century. In fact, uh, 
an historic figure that I'm acquainted with didn't get the vaccine and ended up dying in his 50s because yeah. he got... Oh, that was smallpox. Sorry. Yeah, I think it's probably... Yeah, smallpox... Um, there were a lot of um, experiments with vaccines and there's a thing called variolation where you got um, infected deliberately with smallpox in a certain way that, that um, was quite dangerous, but it was much better than getting smallpox because people were terrified, understandably, of smallpox. They had this very high mortality risk. And if you survived, you were often horribly scarred. Um, yeah. So... That um, was, uh, you can see why people were so um, pleased to get that vaccine. And same with polio. People were queuing to get polio vaccine when it first arrived. Okay. And it's interesting now, we've become very complacent about vaccines because we've all grown up with them. And uh, ch childhood now is a relatively safe experience where it used to be um, very high risk. Most children died from these circulating um, viruses and bacteria a century ago and now we think it's it's very rare to lose a child so the world has changed hugely because of vaccination and also basic um, um, measures like uh, safe water supply and um, better housing and so on my apologies for mixing up smallpox and measles <laughs> no that's quite right i'm not an expert on the history of um vaccination but except to say that it's transformed the experience of being a child across the globe is there any good reason you can think of for people not getting vaccinated no i think i we need to be clear about that because of the myths that go around on the net and elsewhere yeah i absolutely agree i mean if you've got, um, there are always contraindications for some vaccines, but there are very few. I mean, one of the only ones is if you had a true anaphylactic reaction to a vaccine, that is that your immune system has responded with um, a severe, in a severe way to being infected. And that's a very acute reaction. That's why uh, um, if after vaccination, you're required to wait for usually 20 minutes. Um, and if you had anaphylaxis, all the vaccine providers have adrenaline there they can give you to deal with that response. Now, this is an extremely rare reaction. I've never seen a case, most doctors have never seen anaphylaxis following vaccination, but we all have to be prepared for it. And that's why there's a lot of training to, for vaccinators around mainly dealing with, with that very rare side effect. But apart from that, there's very few contraindications mm. for vaccines. There's more of a psychological reaction of people to authority, isn't it? Well, I think so. And um, the, the, I would say it's disinformation has become very active. And um, my inbox, my e email inbox is constantly filling up with the um, products <laughs> of that global disinformation industry and it's the same stuff being recycled over and over again. Comments it's, from a very yeah. small pool of um, so-called uh, experts. That um, and Trump makes me think about truth. I mean, you can't really, if you're, you have to be careful when you talk about truth. If you say it's all relative and all cultural, then you can get yourself in a very um, difficult spot when you're dealing with things like vaccination. Yeah, um, it's quite interesting how some issues get um, somehow celebrated or um, demonized by certain groups that all out, out of all proportion to, I think, their, their importance. You know, if you're ranking the things to worry about at the moment, unfortunately, it's quite a long list. I mean, vaccines wouldn't even get on my list. No, but, um, the climate if, change. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. And so it always, as someone who tries to be evidence-based, I'm still surprised at the, the, the way some things have been demonized for no logical reason that I can see. Um, so, and vaccination seems to be one of them. I don't know why this has happened. I mean, we often think about um, in public health things like the commercial determinants of health. 
the fact there are big industries globally that make money out of putting out disinformation. The natural foods industry has been linked as a source of anti-vaccination information. There's also, unfortunately, global actors. Um, some countries are very keen to destabilize Western democracies, and they will generate large quantities of disinformation about anything they think will fly and will destabilize the legitimacy of Western governments. Okay. And part of that became an issue during the COVID response. Like countries that took a very vigorous response and uh, developed vaccines very rapidly and, and rolled them out, that became a target for disinformation, I think, for geopolitical reasons. So I think we just have to be very skeptical of this kind of information that is generated overseas and arrives in various forms in, in places like New Zealand. As far as the individual is concerned, what can we do and what should we do to try to avoid getting it, um, even if, or repeat getting it? When, would you advise people when they're flying, if they choose to fly, to wear masks? Um, yeah, they're, they're very can. good questions. I mean, number one is be updated on your vaccination. Um, number two is to self-isolate when you're sick. This is to protect the people around you uh, and ideally test. But if you have a respiratory infection, just um, put your social activities and your work activities on hold, uh, work remotely for a period till you're better. Uh, in terms of um, protecting yourself from infection, I think there's two main things. I mean, one is to be conscious of when you're, where you're meeting other people, uh, particularly when we're in this fifth wave at the moment till we're getting down to low levels of infection again, which hopefully will, will happen in the next month. Uh, just try and meet people in uh, well-ventilated places. I mean, one of the benefits of summertime is you can open doors and windows, you can meet in covered outdoor areas. I think that's quite important. And if you're organizing an event, try and shift it into that environment. In terms of mask use, uh, masks definitely work. I mean, the major determinant of whether masks are effective is the extent to which people wear them. Uh, and that's what we've just done a huge literature review on this. And that was what the literature says. And it is, again, being quite selective about when you wear them. And you think about the three C's of crowded, confined and close contact environments. And airplanes, once you're airborne in a plane, it's actually a relatively safe environment because you're not, you are only moderately crowded, but you've got good ventilation. They've got very good ventilation systems in aircraft. And the air is also very well filtered. Uh, the problem is getting, is going through the air terminal, spending um, what unfortunately is now sometimes hours in queues waiting to get on in crowded environments where you're suddenly exposed to people from sometimes all over the world who are bringing viruses from everywhere and you're passing close by them, the ventilation's not very good. So wearing the mask, getting on and off the plane is the time to focus on it. Okay, I'm going to play a piece of music now and then we'll come back. on your mind Lift the lid and spill the beans Do it now while there is time For you to bring the sunshine back Strengthen up those weary bones Rise again once more to yield You need to come and walk the field I know the bridge will rock and sway Feeling so alone. Yeah, the trouble settles in. Can leave you worried to the bone. But you have grown a thicker skin. You're much tougher than you think. Everybody has their day when the bridge will rock and sway. Do you? 
much tougher than you think And everybody has their day When the bridge will rock and sway We're talking with Professor Michael Baker about um, COVID and other, and other pandemics and uh, public health. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to community or chaos. Michael, um, does, uh, does public health internationally and locally have a set of principles or guidelines? Yes, I think like most disciplines, it's evolved a mixture of quite explicit um, positions and also a, a culture. Uh, but the broad principles are things like improving healthy years of life for people, not just the duration, but the quality of life. I think there's a huge emphasis on equity um, not leaving people behind, um, trying to reduce discrimination and prejudice, racism and so on, which are very corrosive. Would that include economic, um, the fact that poor people have less access in most of the world, including America and to some extent even in New Zealand to health outcomes? Yeah, yeah that's a, a huge focus. Um the, the other area is around um, a sustainable, healthy environment, which we know is critical for survival. And we would also look very much at the sustainable development goals. I mean, there are 17 of them. They cover everything you can think of. Um, but um, some of them uh, obviously drive um, health gain. I think uh, we look particularly at, um, I, I mean, as soon as you get into the health area or population health you suddenly think, well, what's driving the decision-making? And we think about things like the commercial determinants of health and our the robustness of our democracies, the fact that they should be free from interference from industry. And we're just seeing at the moment in New Zealand that the tobacco industry is having a big impact on our government's policies, unfortunately. And that's because of um, lobbying and very direct connection with some of our political uh, elected political leaders. So these are the kind of things that you you get very start to get aware of when you see decisions being made which don't make sense from a, a health and well-being and even an economic perspective. And it's because different um, uh, groups, commercial groups, have um, they are very um, they put a lot of effort into lobbying and getting influence in the decision making. So. These are all um, big principles um, that I think would be recognized across the globe amongst public health um, activists, uh, researchers, and uh, the workforce. Ibsen wrote a play, I think, about the influence of uh, commercial interest over the um, public health. It was, I think it was about water, a doctor, in Norway. A long time ago, <laughs> but yeah, tobacco has a has a very interesting history of denial. They, for you know, fifty years, they were saying you didn't really get cancer from smoking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always one of those I think very sobering um, historical um, points that even after you had very high quality studies showing that um, smoking was the major cause of lung cancer. It took decades before 
policy caught up with that that fact. And the other fact is that nicotine is an extremely addictive drug. And uh, so you can't blame the victims. It's not just willpower, but young children are, um, young adults now are switching, of course, from tobacco to vaping, but they're getting the same very powerful addiction starting at a young age. Um, and we know what addiction does. It actually results in physiological changes, making it very hard to stop that substance. And starting very young is not good for your chances of avoiding long-term tobacco use and nicotine use in its various forms. It's, to me, it's almost corrupt that corporations can lie about the effects of their product. Like, I mean, the this seems to me like the energy company, oil and coal, took a leaf from the tobacco company. They denied that climate change was happening for a long time after it was well known. And they, in fact, the oil companies were the first people to know about climate change in a practical way. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's no accident that, that um, despite the evidence, we still have um, climate change denialism um, and uh, these other views, the anti-vax movement, that these have often have their links to um, uh, very well-funded lobbying efforts. Uh, and we should, we need as, to be very aware of these processes. Are public health and public medical institutions in New Zealand up to scratch and able to deal adequately with present and future pandemics? and our normal health needs? And if not, why not? Well, I think it's a qualified yes. I mean, uh, New Zealand has, um, uh, you know, a highly developed socialised uh, health system, along with uh, a lot of other social democracies. And I think that's a really precious um, resource that is valued by New Zealanders. Uh, and it performs very well in most areas. It's got its limitations, of course, that we're very aware of. And similarly, it's what we call it. It's The terms are quite a bit confusing, but the, the true public health or population health arm is a tiny part of that. But that includes um, all of the things we saw during the pandemic, that you've got um, a national policy setting function, you've got service delivery locally, you've got the ability to purchase and deliver vaccines and antivirals. So it's very much a systems approach. And there's evidence that New Zealand has performed very well in that area. I mean, you can look at um, the COVID-19 response, where we still have the lowest cumulative mortality uh, in the world, or very close to it. There may be some very, there's some small island countries which are in a similar position where we've got negative excess mortality after four years of dealing with the pandemic. And that is absolutely exceptional. So it shows that New Zealand can deliver amongst the best responses in the world. Uh, and uh, many people were celebrating our tobacco law as being world leading, and it is. And it's being followed now by the UK. Conservative government is saying, we want a smoke-free generation. And that's why I think, um, hopefully, this is not going to, we are going to not abandon that policy. The decision hasn't been legislated against yet but i think that's a chance for us to really continue with this really extraordinary effort we have in new zealand to look after our people what do you think of the fact that more people are now going into private health than in the past particularly for uh joint operations and, and things like that the things that won't kill you immediately though they may kill you in the case of, though, if you're in Southland, people have missed out on cancer treatment. Yeah, uh, look, I think this is a, a sign that our system is under huge stress. And, of course, what happens when you have um, a lot of uh, acute healthcare demands on the system and you throw in, add in a, a pandemic, um, which is still resulting in uh, currently about 300 people a week 
going into hospital or more, all of that puts pressure on the system. And so what is displaced is all the elective work. And so for many New Zealanders, particularly low-income New Zealanders, will will miss out on care like joint replacements and so on that is really important for their quality of life. And that is a tragedy. It also so affects we, how long they can stay in their own home. That's right. So there's so many repercussions from that. And I think that is a sign that our system is not coping at the moment. So that's the, they're the groups who are missing out. Um, hopefully people are not missing out on acute cancer care. I mean, there are some ex examples where that appears to have happened, but that I think the, those patients are still prioritized very highly. Should we put more money into our health care? And should we, and how do you keep the number of practitioners up? How do you make sure that, it seems to me if you have a, less practitioners in the hospital and other parts of the system, then it's harder to stay in the system yourself because you, the, the hours are longer, the pressure's higher. That's right. Uh, New Zealand does have, uh, uh, probably has a shortage of um, some health practitioners, I think particularly nursing staff. It is quite interesting, um, just um, because I knew you were going to talk about this topic, I actually looked up our... Uh, um, the data on doctors per capita in New Zealand compared with other countries. And we are, um, you know, in a very similar range to um, the UK, slightly ahead of the UK, slightly less than Australia, about the same as Finland, Three, you know, 3.5 um, doctors per capita, registered doctors. So we're not really, just at that very high level um, description, we're not really low on doctors. We may be lower on nurses. We we may need to just focus on how we're organising our health care to make it more efficient. And there obviously are huge crunch points. Uh, so it's not always totally clear why um, the, what's driving these problems. I think one of them is the the ageing population and increasing demand. The fact that we have very high expectations for um, care, a much wider range of services from our health system. I think we will have to look at investing more in it. Uh, um, I personally think we need to have a more progressive tax um, structure, uh, probably have need to have higher tax rates for high-income earners in New Zealand because we've got relatively low uh, top tax rate, for instance. So I think it is going to be about funding and prioritizing and accepting that we need to put more resources into this sector because the demand is is increasing. I was wondering about our education system when we talk about um, if there are shortages, teachers and doctors and nurses. At one time, education was relatively free for universities. And I was... And it's very expensive to to get a medical a medical degree or a dental degree. Um, and I would imagine that um, when you when you finish with university and med school and you have this loan waving over your head, you're going to think about how you're going to pay for it, and you might partly go into private practice in order to pay for it. And you might also have to charge more than you'd like to to pay for it. And you're yeah. not going you've, you've done this. You and once it's paid for, you're not necessarily going to lower your fees after that. So doesn't this have effects on on outcomes? Yeah, I, again, I think because we've got a predominantly socialised system, uh, there is no charge for um, most care. The exception, of course, is um, primary care. So uh, most New Zealanders will have to pay for that uh, and dental care. But uh, most care and most pharmaceuticals are highly subsidised in New Zealand. Uh, there is, a, of course, a private sector. It's predominantly elective surgery and, and that area. Uh, so it's not a... Um, equity is a real concern. 
that I think we need to keep focusing on. But I don't think the the student debt when you finish um, medicine is um, uh, a huge problem in New Zealand. It's nothing like the level you might have in the US, for instance. Uh, and, and some systems are far more privatized and orientated towards the insurance industry. But yeah, there are um, those equity um, concerns. And I think uh, dental care is probably one of the most stark examples where um, dental health is really suffering in New Zealand because of that, uh, that it's largely a private sector. So do you think that dental care, sh I know some political parties are now talking about making dental care a public good. Yeah, well, I certainly think that you need targeted support at the very least for low-income New Zealanders so they can get, so price is no barrier for them getting adequate dental care because uh, we all pay, everyone will pay for the fact that a lot of New Zealanders have um, real oral health problems because it affects their wider health status. It probably is life-shortening uh, and the, it will affect productivity. So I think investing more in health for all New Zealanders is really important. And I think dental care is one of those areas that's being neglected at the moment. How important is it to have the latest equipment and um, yeah, for hospitals and so on? Yeah, well, you ha it's all relative. I mean, generally you get most of the benefit from investing in the medium priced um, technology uh, in many areas. Sometimes there's new technology which is much more effective um, and makes a huge difference. I guess you have to think about specific examples of where we might be missing out on technology that's really vital. Uh, there'll always be um, new pharmaceuticals which are often extremely expensive uh, and can offer some maybe incremental gains but we do need to look very carefully, and this is where uh, you've got a um, cost um, effectiveness analysis you have to do to say, where should we be putting our priorities? And often it's in ensuring everyone gets up to a certain core basic level of care and access. And then the, there may be benefits in uh, investing in very new cutting edge technology, but sometimes it's more around doing the basics very well. What's your impression of Pharmac? Of Pharmac? Yeah. Well, Pharmac well, first is First, tell us what Pharmac is really, I think. I mean, we, we, heard, we heard the name, we know generally what it is, but well, I suspect most of us don't really know much about Pharmac. Well, Pharmac is what's known by economists as a monopsony. Uh, in other words, it's a single purchaser, not a single provider, um, um, and which is a monopoly. And the benefit is, is that it can go and say, well, um, it looks very carefully at um, new pharmaceuticals and medical devices and vaccines to say, which are going to give the best return on investment? And it sounds, it sounds quite harsh, but it is a reality that if you have a limited pharmaceutical budget, and we know all of these budgets are limited, you have to make hard calls to say, well, how do we spend that to get the most benefit for the most people? And I think if you sat down with most New Zealanders, they'd say, yes, you have to do that. And um, many of us who looked at this from a health economics point of view have said, well, it is um, actually a world-leading agency in how it does that. And so um, it's quite, the problem becomes that some of the things it says, well, really, this is not going to make much difference for many people. Uh, it's outside what we can afford. Therefore, we can't purchase it. We can't add it to our list of free drugs. Uh, that then creates a group of people who are who feel let down, and they have been let down because there's just not enough money in the pharmaceutical budget for them. 
And that's one of the reasons why there's there's quite a bit of opposition to Pharmac. And it's coming from people who would like to have more money spent on their particular treatment, which I fully understand. But you can see the problem uh, that uh, you can't, there isn't enough, enough money to buy the latest drug for every single health condition. So you have to essentially ration, and that's what it does. It tries to do it in a transparent way, uh, but it won't, it can't please everyone by definition. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it certainly does. Isn't this one of the places where trust in your specialists and trust in the system generally, that's a big, that would be a big help in accepting when you can't get the drug you may need? Yeah, I, I think uh, you're right that often we're not very good at communicating. Well, these agencies are not necessarily very good at communicating um, the tough job they're having to do on behalf of all New Zealanders. And so I think that um, transparency and, um, and trust is so important. Uh, and I, I think that a lot of these government agencies could do better. It's a bit like adverse event monitoring. We have a very good system for looking at uh, reactions you get after vaccine or pharmaceuticals. And it, it's saying, for instance, that there's very low risk from following the, the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, these new mRNA vaccines. Uh, there's a, Everyone's tracked for three weeks after they get these vaccines to see if um, what their mortality risk is like and uh, and so on. But these agencies are not very good at saying there's good news here. There's very little to see, or in some cases, nothing to see. Uh, so I think that's been a, a real communications problem. And I think Pharmac has got themselves into a into a difficult position there, where I think some of that trust has probably decreased. I also suspect that if you are lucky enough to get a, a particularly compassionate specialist, and they give you information and advice, and you know that they care a lot. I'm sure they all do. But if your particular specialist is able to um, not only develop that, but communicate that caring, then you're much probably more able to accept the advice. Yeah, I, look, I think that's um, very much the case. And we probably know, all know anecdotally of people who have um, been, I think, in a sense, rescued from um, premature death by a very good specialist who's worked very hard on their case. They've sometimes even gone to the pharmaceutical uh, uh, companies and got a special compassionate supply of, of certain drugs and so on. And, you know, I think there's still um, many examples like that happening. And it's partly because of the biotech revolution that's happening, particularly in the in the um, immunotherapy, so cancer, where there are these drugs which are absolutely transformative and they're giving people sometimes years, sometimes remission or years of life. And so we all, uh, I guess we're all cheering that on, that process, because it's making such a difference in people's lives. Um, so hopefully these access um, barriers will gradually get removed from more, more of these drugs in the future. What are your hopes for public health in the world and in New, Ze New Zealand? And can is public health connected with things like housing, uh, sewage, water, the general inf infrastructure which we need and live with. Yes, uh, I, I mean I've got huge hopes for um, public health. I'm, I mean I'm an optimist, but I also think that public health fits very much with the New Zealand psyche that we believe in fairness, a fair go for everyone. Um, we're very pragmatic, um, so we like things that work, and public health clearly works. And we also are, I think, quite environmentally conscious and proud of our environment. 
So I think they're wonderful values that are very closely aligned with po what public health or population health is trying to do. I think the experience during COVID-19 showed what we're capable of. And that's why I find it um, quite disturbed that um, we might be looking at repealing this leading smoke-free law, because I think most New Zealanders, when, when you think about it, would really appreciate that. We want to protect our young people from becoming addicted to a drug that will, will could wreck their lives, or almost certainly will wreck their lives if they persist with it. That's nicotine. Um, we recognise that it's not a level playing field. You have these companies that are very well resourced that it's just basically business practice for them to influence the process and promote um, tobacco and alcohol in particular, which are by far our most dangerous drugs. And the fact that we demonize certain other recreational drugs makes no sense at all. I mean, I think we want to have a, a harm reduction or harm minimization approach to all drugs. But it means getting very tough with tobacco and alcohol, which are incredibly destructive. So uh, it's just a, a, about being pragmatic. Uh, and it's not about some distant um, agencies, governments telling you what to do. It's about facilitating New Zealanders to achieve the best lives we can. And also it's recognising when we're up against um, these, I think, quite dark forces, um, which at a global level are working very hard to make profit from us at every opportunity. And they will sometimes dress this up as freedom, but it's often not freedom at all. It's basically a form of oppression. So I think we just have to recognise that. And I think um, when you look globally, at, you know, I think New Zealand has is a world leader in terms of its uh, race relations approach uh, towards being a bicultural society. And again, I think we don't want to lose that because the alternative is so much worse that um, we allow persistent racism. Uh, and we already have racism in New Zealand. Um, we've got the long tail of the effects of colonization. We've got Maori on average living seven years less than the European majority. I mean, that's such a stark indicator that we have failed to deliver an, a, a fair and equi equitable society. So, I, yes, I'm very hopeful in New Zealand we have to have these discussions, but let's have them in the in the open and the light and understand why these are really important and very tied to New Zealand values. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciated the uh, information you've been able to give us and the way of looking at public health and health generally and the interconnection of some of it. So thanks a lot for coming on, uh, Michael Baker. Well, thanks, Marvin. I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.